and I'm glad this morning it is well with my soul. Um, we're going to begin in the book of Mark, so if you want to grab your Bibles and find your place there in Mark 11 this morning, and as you get yourself uh, prepared for that, just as a reminder of where we've been again, and I want to always keep in that in context, we have journeyed through the book of Mark for some time now, and we've taken uh, little uh, breaks from our journey through the book of Mark. The first section of Mark, the first eight and a half chapters, we ask the question, who is Jesus? And Peter reminds us at the end of that eight and a half chapters, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he makes this declaration. Of course, immediately then, Jesus begins to teach the mission of the Messiah. What did the Messiah come to do? And Jesus tells him right off the bat, he'd come to be the suffering servant. Um, the apostles didn't want to hear that. They didn't believe in a suffering servant. They were looking for a ruling king, not a suffering servant. And of course, even to the point of Peter rebuking the Lord for saying he was going to go suffer. And of course, Jesus looking at Peter and saying, get thee behind me. Uh, you treasure not the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus unfolded for the next several chapters, uh, all the way up to we get to chapter 11, that his job was to come. He came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's how we end chapter 10 with that note. And then we open chapter 11, and at chapter 11 through the end of the book is the journey to the cross. And this is the, the passion week that we would call, or the, that week leading up from the triumphant entry to the Lord's crucifixion, and we see this unfold over several chapters. Um, and so that's where we're at this morning. Uh, last week we looked at the triumphant entry. This week we're going to begin reading in verse number 12 and down through verse number 25. And we're going to take this narrative that's bookend by an illustration and some instruction and uh, try to draw some instruction from it for ourselves this morning. If you found your place and you're ready with your Bible, let's stand in honor of the Word of God and read this together if we could. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. I think we just have to stop at that and consider that the creator of the world was hungry. And he became flesh. He took on the limitations of humanity and he knew what it was to be hungry. So much man that he hungered and yet so much God that he speaks to the winds and the waves and they obey him. Here he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. The time of figs was not yet. Jesus answered and said unto him, No man eat fruit of thee henceforth forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. The scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. 
For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he hath shall come to pass, which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you that whatsoever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. When ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we open the word of God regularly, weekly. We stand in this hour and this time on a Sunday to proclaim the word of God. And Lord, we want this morning, as in all Sundays, for it to be the word of God that we hear, not the opinions of men. Lord, we ask you that you would help us to think into the text together this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply the text well to our own hearts this morning. And Lord, as we have prayed so many times, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands and feet that are obedient. And we'll just praise you for what you're doing. Make us more like Jesus today. In the precious name of Jesus, we do ask all these things. Amen. You can be seated there if you would. So the triumphant entry has taken place. The Pharisees were angry and have told him to tell them to be quiet. Jesus responded, if they hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. The Lord then stands, as we saw last week in verse number 11, that he entered Jerusalem and looked about the city. He saw the temple and what was going on, and then he leaves the temple and goes back home. Uh, some argue that very possibly he was not staying with Mary and Martha, uh, because he would not have come back hungry the next morning. They would have fed him. Um, I think that's interesting. Uh, how many of you know somebody in your family that you would never leave without eating before you left their house, right? I kind of pictured that would be Mary and Martha's place. Um, but Jesus comes back into the city the next morning. His kingship has been on display in the triumphant entry. He's riding the colt of a donkey in, and we saw last week how it was a demonstration of who he was as the Messiah, but that he was coming as the victorious king with peace. He was coming in that way. Now his role of prophet and priest bubbled to the surface as he was we focus on the prophecy about the tree and the cleansing of the temple that takes place. In this text, two things seem out of character and maybe one other issue that I want to clear up as we begin our journey through this narrative. It's a little bit out of character to see Jesus cursing something and it dying. Uh, how many of you understand that when Jesus touched something, generally it came to life? The leper was healed of his leprosy. The dead were raised to life. The lame walk. And his words were words that brought life. But in this scenario, we find him cursing the tree and the tree dries up. We also see him doing something that doesn't seem to always fit with some of our modern views of Jesus, and that is exercising authority and judgment in the temple. And that he comes in and drives out the money changers. He drives out those that are buying and selling. He's running them out and doing so with force and authority. These things seem to be a little bit, maybe not lining up with what we would think of Jesus. Now let me make something very clear. In the, the fig tree illust uh, example here, Jesus is using this as the example of the condition of the nation of Israel 
of the condition of Jerusalem itself, of the temple itself, and yea, even I think we can take application for us to check our own heart by. And as we walk into this, the temple then is also being corrected, and Jesus has several things that I think give the, the right way of we can see this, and that is, first off, he has ownership of all things. This is not somebody else's temple ground. This is his temple. This is where he is to be worshipped, and his father is to be worshipped and to be magnified, and Jesus comes with ownership. He also comes with authority. Authority that is given him by the Father to do the work that he is doing. And not only that, but he has a heart of love and compassion as he does it. Uh, how many of you of you with children this morning, um, and maybe you don't do this, but I have been guilty of doing this, and that is uh, not always correcting with the right heart. Some of you are looking at me very pious right now, like you've always had exactly the right heart when you correct your kids. Um, that, you know, you've never, ever lost your temper with your kids. And if you haven't, you should write a book uh, because that's a, that's a pretty big feat. But the fact is we don't always go in with a heart of compassion when we're correcting. But Jesus comes and we see even the night before as he stood over the temple, Luke 13 tells us that Jesus stood there and he wept over the city. He was heartbroken over what was going on. You know, when we consider what Jesus is correcting the temple with, and we consider the fig tree illustration that he's laying out, we understand that he has the authority to do these things. One other issue that we see is the broad promise of answered prayer. Now, how many believe that God is able to do anything? Can you say amen to that? And we can rest in the fact that God is able to do anything. And, but he gives this broad promise of answered prayer, and I, I want you to look at it with me again, if you would. Um, and Jesus, in verse number 23, he's responding to Peter's shock over the tree. He said, Verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now that's a pretty broad promise. If you say to a mountain and you believe it, you can cast this mountain into the sea. Well, the first thing we see about this is this is a Jewish idiom that refers to something that is impossible. And Jesus is saying, I believe you can ask for the impossible, and the impossible can be done. If we would come asking in faith and not doubting. Um, and so he's not prescribing to us that we should go about moving mountains around. He's saying that you should ask for the impossible and do so boldly. It refers to this idiom of doing the impossible. We might say, uh, when we talk about what is impossible, you know, you might say, well, I'll do that when pigs fly, right? And we're using a, a way of describing what is impossible. It's not going to happen. And here Jesus is using that same kind of term. Now, as a side note, I think if today we lived in 2021, if we wanted a mountain moved, we wouldn't stop to pray about it. We would just hire somebody with a bulldozer and get to moving it. And maybe that's part of the issue is that we don't turn to God for the impossible. We turn to ourselves and our own ability to accomplish the impossible. We try to figure out a way to make it happen. And here Jesus is saying, whatever you desire, this, this cannot be, and any time we read Scripture, we always read Scripture in, in light of Scripture. We always say Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture, and so this cannot be divorced from the balance of Scripture that tells us if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. It can't be divorced from Scripture that says that we ask to consume it upon our lust. So we, we are not by any means being given a license to covet, 
and to let our lustful hearts run wild and then ask God to give us what we covet after. That is not what's being given here. It is not, in, and in the Western church here, and it's spread around the world, is this idea of somehow or another a name it and claim it kind of idea that somehow or another you can just claim whatever you have and that's yours because you've claimed it. Or you can speak words that are creative power and we take false understandings of who God is and who we are. Well, God spoke everything into existence and so therefore his words were creative. You and I were created in the image of God, so therefore we can speak words and they are creative as well. And here's the thing this morning, you're not God and you're not Jesus. I'm not God, I'm not Jesus. Our words do have great power, but I promise you this morning, if you go home and try to create your lunch with your words, you're going to be hungry tonight. Because that's not what God intended for it to be at all. God is giving us the one avenue to the throne room of heaven through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And to pray to satisfy our lust is an abomination uh, to do so in the name of prayer. We're not praying to satisfy our lust. We're praying for his name to be glory. Now, let me say this. I do not want to limit what God can do, but boldly believe that he is the only one that can do the impossible. And I think the instruction here this morning is for us to look to a God who can do the impossible. And if we would keep it in the context of Scripture, even this instruction I've given this morning would not even be necessary. But we look at that, and I want to make sure we're understanding that in light of the text. Now next, I want you to see three ways that we'll understand this text. And I want to break it down into three sections, and these are the ways we'll, we'll discover it as we walk through. First off, I want you to see the illustration and then we'll look at the correction and then the instruction. So the illustration, the correction, the instruction. Now here we are, we're on the 10th day of January. How many of you have set some goals for January or for the year? All right, anybody want to give a report on how it's going so far? So um, <laughs> I'm getting some thumbs down over here. We'll check back with you in June and see how the resolutions are doing. Now we joke about that and, and we... we um, we tease about failing at our resolutions, um, but we all set goals. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with setting goals. I would encourage you to do it, and I would encourage you to measure them as you go. However, as we're setting goals and we're making plans, we tend to fail or come up short. And so then as we begin to fail, how many of you have ever been guilty of, well, at least I'm not doing as bad as they're doing? Um, and, well, I, you know, I've been to the gym more times this year than you have, and so I'm Okay. You know, if we measure by the wrong measuring stick, we can all measure up pretty well. A little boy came to his mom. He said, Mom, I just found out I'm as tall as Goliath, the giant. And she goes, no, you're not. And he goes, no, I am. I'm as tall as, I'm nine foot tall. And she goes, no, you're not. You're not nine foot tall. He goes, I am. And she goes, let me get a ruler. She goes, no, Mom, you have to measure with my ruler. And he pulled his own ruler out. He had one about that tall. And see, I'm tall as Goliath. You know, and if you change the measuring stick, we all measure up pretty well. And I think what has happened in this account here is that the temple had changed the measuring stick, and it thought it was doing pretty well. But the measuring stick came in and exposed what was not right, and opened it up to a new view. So I want you to see the illustration, uh, the correction, and the instruction. The illustration, verses 12 through 14, Jesus comes in verse number 14, and seeing the fig tree of far, or 13 rather, seeing the fig tree of far off, 
he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Nothing but leaves. This tree was full in bloom and, or in, 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 in foliage was all around it. And the idea between the, the, my reading of this is that though the harvest season for figs was not yet, it was still uh, expected that when you saw a tree in full leaf, that there could be some fruit on that tree, and it was, it was logical to expect there to be some there. And even uncompletely ripe fruit would be eaten uh, as travelers would go by and take less than ripe fruit for their sustenance as they traveled. And so Jesus sees this tree and goes to it and expects it, uh, wanting to find some sustenance from the tree. The Bible tells us that we saw already that he was hungry. But there's no fruit. There's nothing there but leaves. It's a, it's a, it's a tree that has all the appearances of fruit bearing but no fruit. No doubt the thought of the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13 comes to the mind of the apostles as they think back. And Jesus talks about the fig tree, who the, the, uh, the owner of the, uh, of the fig tree had come, and he had looked at the tree three years in a row expecting to find fruit. He said, three years have I come to find fruit, and I find no fruit from you. And he, he says to the husbandmen of the field, just cut it down. Why cumbers at the ground anymore? Let's get rid of this tree. It's not accomplishing anything. And you take it out of the, uh, take it out of the field. We'll get rid of it. And of course, the husband says, no, 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 wait, let's, let's dig about it and let's, let's fertilize the roots and let's, let's invest in this one more time and let's see if there could be some fruit coming. You know, I wonder how many times Jesus had walked by this tree expecting fruit. How many times did he come to Jerusalem expecting to see some fruit and not seen it? And I have to even ask even further, how many times has he come to the door of my house and my heart? expecting fruit, and he found nothing but leaves. Just an empty tree with a bunch of leaves and no fruit on it. And here, here's the thing, folks. If the root system is right, then the fruit system will grow. Too often we find ourselves with just the appearance of growth. I think God does in his graciousness send us through periods of correction and even fertilizing to help us grow. How many have ever gone through a period in your life where you said everything just really stinks right now? Maybe that was some fertilizer. God's trying to get our attention. He's trying to prepare us to produce some fruit. And so as we walk into this this morning, Jesus curses this tree. He says to him, no fruit will grow on you. Or actually, he says, no, we'll eat fruit hereafter. Nobody's going to eat fruit from you anymore. Now, that's an interesting thing because nobody was eating fruit from him already. There was no fruit being produced on this tree. Nobody was being sustained by it at all. The tree was already fruitless. In essence, Jesus' curse on this tree was that tree, you get to remain exactly what you are, a fruitless tree. You get to stay where you are, and I, I'm not going to have fruit grow on you. You will remain fruitless, but here is the caveat. I am going to make the reality of your fruitlessness known. And when they come back to the tree and the next morning, what we see is that the tree is supernaturally and overnight shriveled up. And it's very obvious that it's dead from a distance. And Jesus exposes the fruitlessness of the tree. Just as our first parents did their best to cover up their inadequ inadequacies with fig leaves as they sewed them together, 
The tree is covering its fruitlessness with its fig leaves. And if I could venture, Jerusalem is covering up her idolatry with noise and busyness. And this is what is going on in our text. And Jesus is using this fig tree to point the apostles and us this morning at the appearance of health with no fruit. And challenging us to move away from just being satisfied with appearance. Now let me just say, thank God for his patience. How many of us could say we've had more than three years of barrenness in our life? Where there's not been any fruit and God's not done a work in us and we, Lord, I I have been barren and I've been that way for longer than three years and God has been patient with me. Aren't you glad this morning his long-suffering is long-suffering? That he takes time and he's patient with us and he leads us along. But this morning, are we content as a church and a people with simply the appearance of production? Are we satisfied with just looking good on the outside? Are we satisfied with just having enough leaves? So we see the Lord's correction. We see not only the illustration, but the correction. Now the illustration runs through the entirety of our text here, but the correction is very clear. The outer courts, Jesus comes to of the temple. I I want you to look at this, if you would, and just read with me. In uh, verse number 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And we're talking of the temple mount here. We're talking about the area where the Gentiles were allowed to gather. There was a wall that a Gentile could not pass. He could go no further than that wall. And it would have been that area of the temple that we're talking about, this gathering place. And this had become a bustle of activity. Jesus addresses buyers and sellers alike. He runs them both out of the, te- of the temple area. Now, if you would picture just for a moment what is going on here, we have the, the needs of sacrifice that uh, need to be purchased when you get to the Temple Mount. And, and so they would have needed salt and different spices and some meal and different things that would have been offered and different sacrifices. And then you would have had animals that needed to be sold and, and you would have turtle doves. And we see here the doves were a part of this. We see all of these different elements that were there. And yet what had happened is they had now encroached so much upon the temple that the temple itself was not where they was expected to be selling or buying this stuff. The area that should have been a place for prayer was now a place for commerce. And they were setting it all up and and, and the place where uh, the Gentiles should have gathered and seen prayer taking place was a place now where you could hear oxes lowing in the background and sheep making their noise and the clack of hoofs on the ground and you could hear uh, the bartering going on at the table next to you and somebody else haggling over their price over here and then money changers going on and all of this noise is going about and yet there's no prayer taking place. This busyness is taking place. And Jesus comes into this midst the night before and he sees all of this and his heart is broken over it. And now he comes in and he begins to address it. What does Jesus do? He throws over the tables. He's driving out the buyers and the sellers. I've often wondered what the apostles were doing right now. They were traveling with him and they get there with him to this temple area. And I imagine Jesus just kind of going in and start throwing things over. I don't think he you know, turned to the guys and said, hey, watch this. You know, I think he just went in and started doing it. He started taking the authority and throwing things over. I mean, can you imagine going into work tomorrow morning, your boss pulling that? 
just starts throwing desks over, somebody's going to call 911. This guy's gone crazy. Jesus goes in, and with authority, he throws the tables over. And you picture the money just scattering across the surface of the stone. And the men are scrambling around on their hands and knees trying to gather up their profits that have been scattered across the ground. And I see uh, birds flying off in this distance and, and, a, and a, a pen being knocked down over here and cattle running out that side. And all of this is going on, and it's a complete chaos in the moment as Jesus corrects it all. And then people are kind of standing back going, what in the world just happened? And then people were trying to carry things through the temple mount. And he says, no, don't do that. Take it around. And the picture here is that the Mount of Olives in the city proper would have been on either side of the temple mount. And people were using the temple area as a, cut, a shortcut to get over to the other side, either to the Mount of Olives or back to the temple proper. And they were cutting through the temple ground. And it wasn't made for being a shortcut. He said, you're desecrating it by bringing your stuff through here. He said, don't do that. Go around the city. Go around the temple and go the way you're supposed to. And so he's stopping people from coming in and just making light of it. And he's thrown over the money changers. He's thrown over and busted open the pins. And the Bible tells us that even the turtle doves were being sold. This would have been the sacrifice of the poorest of the poor. Here are these men that were there about making money and gain and pragmatic enterprises were doing their best to take advantage of everyone they could, even the poorest of the poor. They were looking to fill their pockets and to line uh, their coffers with the money. The money changers. There was a minimal amount of money that had to be brought as an offering to the temple, and that minimal amount of money had to be brought in temple currency, not Roman currency. And so the Roman currency would be brought to the table and they would exchange it for temple currency and then that could be given as an offering. And of course what was happening in the transaction is they were charging for the transaction and extorting money from them. Well, you gotta give an offering to the Lord, so come here. I mean, can you imagine showing up to Shelby Bible Church on a Sunday and like, well, we have Shelby Bucks. That's the only way you can give to Shelby Bible Church is you have to buy Shelby Bucks and then you can give to us but as you buy the Shelby Bucks, there is an upcharge on the Shelby Bucks. <laughs> and you, you, we joke about it, we laugh at that, but that's exactly what's taking place. They're coming there looking to make their dollar off of every opportunity they can. Pulling to themselves and heaping to themselves. Jesus' rebuke, look what he says here. I kind of get the picture that everything kind of gets quiet. I, I picture a, a sheep scurrying out this side over here and a money changer trying to grab something off the pavement over here and scurrying out that side. And everybody's just kind of standing around looking at him. And he goes, come here. And he reads, we read this, he says, and he taught them saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of thieves. You've, you've adulterated what it was supposed to be, what it was supposed to be. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7 when he says this. He said, the place of dependency on God was now a place of pragmatic gain and programs. It was a place where this is what we're going to do for us and our, and we're going to build this up, and if we need to move a mountain, we'll hire somebody to move a mountain. If we need to solve a problem, we've got the program to do that, and we'll solve the problem. 
It was not the place of dependency anymore. It was a place of gain and programs. And I think this morning we understand that the temple was a place, the church is a people. We as a people of God are to be the place of dependency upon God, but too often no longer are the people of God the people of dependency upon God, but we become people of pragmatic gain in programs. We don't ask the question anymore, is it right? We ask the question, does it work? We don't ask the question, is it holy? We ask the question, does it make me feel good? And too often we miss the point of what God's called us to be as people of dependency upon God. The church is not fruitful because we can organize as well as the world, because we can market as well as the world, because we can put on productions like the world. That's not where the fruit of the church comes from. And friend, this morning, if we put our confidence in those things, we are going to become trees with nothing but leaves and no fruit. See, here Jesus comes and he says, look, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You're supposed to be dependent upon me, and you're not dependent upon me. One Chinese Christian back in the turn of the century, the 1900s, he had come and visited America, and he asked him, he said, what were you most impressed about in America, about the church? And he said, well, the thing that was most impressing about the church in America is how much the church can do without God. And are we not good at doing things? We're not good at putting on programs, but how many of you still believe what the old hymn writer wrote, unless the Spirit of the Lord come down, it's all in vain. Unless God does the work through his people, then all we've done is put on a pragmatic program and raised a few bucks and built a few buildings. But I don't want to spend my time doing just that. I don't want to spend the rest of my life being a tree with only leaves. God, give us real fruit that really matters Maybe we would do well just to shut the lights off for a time and shut the events down and shut the programs down and get serious with God again. Maybe we could apply that in our own hearts. God, it's not about the production. It's about the person. They were not turning to God but trusting in their shrewdness to make a buck. The temple, Jerusalem, Israel, all of them are typed in this fig tree that stood outside the city that morning. Nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Now we look in verse number 18, and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. So they said, they were so enraged by what he had done And the wording here is that they sought and continued to seek how they might destroy him. Literally, we find them getting serious about the crucifixion now. It is, this is the the spark. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. That's it. We're going to have to take this guy out. He's just got to be destroyed. He wants to come in here and mess up all that we're doing, all that we got set up. He wants to come in here and throw over our money-changing tables. We're not going to have it. Why did they do that? Because they feared him. Because the people listened to him. Even our Lord, though, in the midst of this busy week, he leaves the city and rests that night. Verse number 19 tells us that he went out of the city. He comes back in the next morning. And let me remind us again that the abundance of work is not the answer, but it is God that gives the increase. 
Unless the Lord build the house, we labor in vain that build it. God is the one that does the work. He is the one that builds it. And I think we could apply this further to ourselves individually, could we not? Christ is revealing the sham of their religion, appearance without substance. God can and will upset our money tables to get our attention. God can and will upset what we put our confidence in, we trust in, where our identity lies, what we indulge ourselves in. I think the prayer for the church this morning, and I say the church, big C, I say the church, Shelby Bible Church, I say the individuals that make up the church, let this be our prayer. God purge the unnecessary in order to accomplish the primary. God, get rid of the unnecessary in my heart. Get the unnecessary in my life and help me focus on the primary that you've called us to. We say it a hundred times a year around here, but let's keep the main things the main things and the main things the plain things. And I want to keep saying it so God, remove from us what is unnecessary. You see, the tree covered its barrenness with leaves. The temple tried to conceal its barrenness with busyness and noise. What should have been dependency in prayer was replaced with busyness and noise. And this morning, I would say if If noise and appearance are equal to fruit and prayer, then the American church is okay. But noise is not prayer, leaves are not fruit, and busyness is not faith. It never has been and never will be. And so this morning, we see not only the illustration and the correction, but we see finally the instruction. The tree's dead. Peter's shocked by it. He comes back into the city the next morning, and he's like, this tree has shriveled up from the ground. Now, I'm always amazed how the the Lord Jesus can do the miraculous, and he can do amazing things, and we're still shocked when he does it again. It's like we don't believe that he will do it again. I mean, Peter has witnessed him raise the dead. Peter has witnessed him touch a leprous man. He saw him. Peter walked on water with the Lord. And now he sees the tree that's dead. And, and I told the first hour, I said, look, I've been known to kill a plant in one night myself. I can't, I can't handle plants very well at all. And uh, to, my, to my wife's chagrin, I destroyed them pretty easily. All you have to have is a riding mower and not, where, not know where they're planted. And just, they're done. Um, the reality is, that's not what we see, though, either. We see a miraculous drying up from the roots of this tree where it is clearly dried from the ground up, they see this. And what is Jesus' solution? Jesus turns to them. He doesn't address the tree. He addressed the disciples. And he says to them, and I want you to see it in the text, in verse number 22, and Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. In God. He said, This is where I want you to put your confidence. He said, I want you to rest your confidence and faith in God. He said, Yes, it's a dried up system over there. Put your faith in God. Yes, there's corruption. Put your faith in God. Put your faith in God. And the idea here is to be constantly having faith in God, to be constantly resting in him, not in systems, not in religion, not in nationalism, not in power, not in strong men. Let me just say this morning as your pastor this morning, I want to make it extremely clear. 
I think you ought to stand and operate according to your conscience in the nation we live in. But church, we have to take our confidence out of politics. We have got to put our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can no longer look to strong men to solve problems that only God can solve through the gospel. I challenge us this morning to stand on that. Have faith in God. We pray in line with God's will. Never a display of our power and what we've accomplished, but all for his glory, not for our indulgences. But we go to God asking for the impossible. And I tell you, friend, when I see things that God's going to do, and I think of things that I want God to do, let us ask for the impossible. Because, friend, I don't know your neighbor, but I pray that my neighbors would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when I pray for that, I consider it in my mind, and I think, that seems so impossible. But I want to say, God, take that mountain and cast it into the sea. Take that mountain of unbelief and throw it away. God, take the unbelief of our neighborhood and throw it in the sea. And God, give us a a fruitful ministry of seeing people come to know God. Of asking God to do what we think is impossible. God, restore that relationship that's broken. Too often we're praying for our indulgences and I think too often we don't pray. There are many in here on different levels of your approach to systematic theology, and I'm, I love to study theology in any way, and I'll talk to you about it for hours and hours. And how many of you believe this morning that God is in control of everything? We can say that, right? I believe God's a sovereign God. I believe he is in control, and nothing's catching him by surprise. God didn't wake up this morning and check the news to see what was happening. God is in control. But I think if we're not careful, we can look at prayer And then look at the fact that God is in control and we can say, what's the point? Here's the point. God called us to pray. And here's what I believe. I believe with all of my heart that God is in control and I do not want to let some systematic way of thinking about Scripture rob me of faith in God and the promises of Scripture that call me to pray. God answers prayer according to his will and in response of our prayers. And he says to me, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. And so let us make sure that we obey and pray. Because God is moved by prayer. Pastor, do you understand that? I don't. But explain the Trinity to me, and when you get that explained, then we'll talk about this one. But what I do understand is that I'm called to pray. You're called to pray. So let us not ever get to the place that we think somehow or another prayer is something that should be put on the back burner. But prayer is what we're called to do. Have faith in God and demonstrate it by pouring our hearts out in prayer. And so as we approach the end of this, prayer believing that God can and does the impossible. I still believe today that God heals in answer to prayer. I believe that God does works of changing hearts in answer to prayer. I believe that God raises up churches to life in answer to prayer. I believe God restores broken relationships in answer to prayer. I think God does that in answer to prayer. Let us pray believing that God can and God does. Let me say this, pray and pray on. Don't stop praying. Make prayer a part of your daily routine. Make it part of your every morning. Here's the wonderful thing about prayer and the most dangerous thing about prayer. The most wonderful thing about prayer is I can pray anywhere at any time. 
And the most dangerous thing about prayer is I can pray anywhere at any time. Because something you can do at any time usually gets done at no time. We have to be intentional about calling out to him. Anywhere you are, on your way to school, on your way to log in, for school, at home, pray. On your way to work, pray. At home, before you go to bed, pray. Making prayer a priority. Pray without holding back. You say, Pastor, how do I know that we're having faith in God? How do I know that I can check my heart this morning and make sure that things are lined up right? See, when we see this call to have faith in God, he ends it with, and forgive. Literally what he's saying is, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do these things, you'll pray in the right way. These two things are in view here. They're, they're set there together. And here's an evidence that I do not have my heart dependent upon God. When I hold unforgiveness toward a brother or sister. And he immediately runs to that. And you, I challenge you to do a study of Jesus talking about prayer and see how many times he refers to forgiving. Laying it down, letting it go. It's kind of like the dash on your car. If the forgiveness, unforgiveness light is flashing, then you can rest assured that under the hood, there's no faith in God. And when there's no faith in God, we need to say, Pastor, what am I going to do about that? Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Open up the word of God. And I said to you at the beginning, the right measuring stick. And start measuring ourselves by the scripture. And letting the scripture do the work within us. That it can do. We lay it aside. Have faith in God. Set aside our appearances this morning. And have faith in God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, your word is sufficient. Lord, it meets what we need, what needs to happen in our hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, this morning that we would not hear just a pragmatic list of things that we need to do, but, Father, we would see a relationship that we need to run to. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in us. God, give us a heart to know you and to trust you and know that you are still in control. And, Father, you still have a work and you're doing that work through your people. Or may we as people of God be people of dependency upon God. In the precious name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Would you stand with me?